Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM, this is Motty Meats. The canny king of charismatic football commentary is joined by a football legend from the good old days. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. I'm John Motson, and on this edition of Motty Meets, I'm joined by the former Charlton Athletic and West Ham United manager, Alan Kirbishley. We had to win that final. I thought Sunderland could afford to lose it. I couldn't afford to lose it. The club couldn't afford to lose it. Yeah, I thought that, you know, hold on, if this works out, I could, uh, I could be the England manager. In the end, it became untenable that I wasn't running the football club. I wasn't running my side of it. And one of the many reasons we've invited you along as a guest on Motty Meets, Alan, is because your goal, your first goal, in fact, in professional football, came along in a game I was commentating on, West Ham versus Newcastle in 1975. We'll discuss that moment shortly. But first, let's look at the early years of your life. And you really were an East End boy, weren't you? <laughs> Absolutely. I was, I was uh, born in Canning Town, lived uh, a mile away from West Ham Station, and about 150 yards from where we was living, Clive Charles and Johnny Charles, two West Ham uh, players at the time, lived. And uh, there was a real West Ham connection. Down my road, Chrissy Hooten lived. And uh, one or two others, the, the Oldsworth brothers, come from the same, same area. So absolutely an East London boy. In fact, you were a boyhood West Ham fan, not surprisingly. You won England caps at schoolboy and youth level, but you weren't the only famous face in your family because your older brother, Bill Kirbishley, is well known for his work as manager of The Who and as a film producer. And I want to take you back to a concert by The Who in May 1974 when 88,000 people crammed into the valley, bigger than any football crowd they've had since the war, um, in fact, the largest crowd ever at the stadium, and you were there, Alan, as a badge seller. <laughs> Don't tell the tax man. No, uh, my brother organised the concert, he just took the who on, and uh, they was having this uh, concert at the valley, it was the first time I've ever been to the valley, and uh, I, was, I was 15, nearly 16, just about to join West Ham as an apprentice. And uh, so he installed a badge-making machine in my mum's house. And me and my younger brother, Paul, we made these badges, tons of them. And then on the Saturday morning, arrived at the valley to see all these fans camping out overnight all around the, all around the ground. And the valley wasn't what it is now, John. You know, it was a bit dilapidated, as we know, and, 
and that big bank. Apparently, there was 46,000 people on that bank for the concert. And obviously, the stage went out from the main stand to, to the halfway line, kickoff spot. And there was 88,000, because I think Ken Livingston, who was the uh, mayor of London at the time, actually flew an helicopter over. And they could tell by, by the square inch of the photograph how many people was actually in there. And I think Garvey Goldsmith, who was, a, who was the promoter, got fined because there was too many people in there. But we did sell the badges and, uh, you know, who badges, who badges, 10 pence. We sold out. Having touched the pop music scene there, you then got into your apprenticeship at West Ham. I remember, I think, your debut, March 1975 at Upton Park against Chelsea. Yeah, it was against Chelsea, and uh, I didn't realise I was playing. I, I went, I, I was pulled out of the South East Counties team on the Friday, but I still went and watched the South East Counties at Chadwick, the team play. And Ronnie Boyce was the manager at the time and just looked at me and said, what on earth are you doing here? Get yourself over to Upton Park. You know, I said, well, I'm going to go over there in a minute. Get over there now. And I didn't even know I was playing, John. Um, but obviously, when I got there, I realised I was in the team. And um, Tommy Langley, it was a good friend of mine. He was playing for Chelsea. And I think Phillips, the goalkeeper, got injured. And Tommy had to go in goal. That was before, you know, before there was, there was only one sub. And uh, we ended up losing 1-0. Mickey Joy scored, I think. And that was my, that was my debut. But... Obviously, the game that I remember most was uh, when the season started the next year. Uh, that was the, the game that I really remember. Well, yes, it would be. But before we talk about that, you'd made your debut in the 74-75 season, but it was also a year when West Ham got to the cup final. I know you weren't quite ready then to be part of the squad, but uh, were you there on the day they beat Fulham? I was there on the day. I was included in the squads to the build-up because John was resting people. Uh, John Lyle was resting people leading up to the final. And our last league game actually was at Ipswich, uh, who we knocked out in the semi-final. And Bobby Robson t- took great pleasure in beating us five-something. But obviously it was at the final. And uh, now I went to watch it like every, like a, like a fan. And, uh, you know, the Bobby Moore connection, etc. And uh, and after that, after the final, I immediately went off with uh, the England youth team to play in the Mini World Cup, uh, which we actually won. Great memories, you know, and the team, Ray Wilkins, Glenn Oddall, Brian Robson, Peter Barnes. We had some great players in that side who all came through and played for their teams. And England won a trophy. We actually won it. And uh, I think uh, the pictures resurfaced recently of us getting off the plane with, with the trophy because the England under 16s, 17s and 18s have done ever so well recently. Yes, right. And that, we was the last team to win anything, I think. That was, what, 1975? It was. <laughs> and, and later that year, October... And I can identify with this. You scored your first goal for West Ham in a 2-1 win against Newcastle. Now, I was commentating. I remember this was very early in the game you mm-hmm. scored. 17 years old. Absolutely, yeah. It's, and uh, Clyde, The ball went up to Clyde Best, who brought it down and laid it off. And I sort of, I sort of controlled it on my knee and, and I followed it and it flew in the bottom corner. And I couldn't believe it. I just, you know, jumped up and down and, and, and whatever. And uh, I made the goal for Alan Taylor, the winner. Banged the ball over the top. Malin Taylor ran onto it. And it was funny because I, I went to the game on the bus. I walked from a house in uh, Gainsborough Road, Canning Town, walked out to Barking Road, got the bus to the game. And after the game, um, I think I went on the pitch and done an interview with you, you know, for Match, match of the Day. day. And um, 
John said to Frank Lampard Sr., will you take him home? Uh, you know, because he knew I'd come on the bus. <laughs> and uh, Frank said, yeah, Frank said to me, I'll see you in the players' lounge. Come in the players' lounge and I'll take you home. I went in the players' lounge and Bobby Moore was in there and he'd been watching the game. So Bobby Moore and Frank took me home, took me home to a, a mum and dad's house. And, uh, you know, that was that was the thing. And, and Frank said to me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do tonight? I said, I'm going to stay in and watch Match of the Day, you know, as you did. Mm. And, uh, you know, I got out of the car and they went off. Well, uh, you've always kept the best company, Alan. <laughs> um, the following season, uh, by now you obviously established yourself in the first team squad, you actually took part in the Cup Winners' Cup, the European competition, didn't you, in which West Ham did very well. In fact, uh, I think you, you probably came on as a substitute in the second leg against Den Haag. I played in the first leg away in Den Haag and we got beat 4-2. It was really up against us. Madden. Robson. Madden. Goed voorgetrokken. Ja, en prachtig ingekocht. Jongens, jongens, wat een mooie goal is dat. And then I was sub. Um, I was in the squad throughout the, the tournament, really. And uh, we beat Den Haag to get into the semi-final. And then... The semi-final, which many people think is the greatest game ever at Apton Park against Eintracht Frankfurt, got through to that to that uh, to the final, and I was sub for the final, uh, which um, was in Heysel. And uh, you know we started off so well, and Frank got injured, and and the team got changed around a bit, and in the end Van der Helst uh, finished us off, and uh, we got beat. But it was a great experience, and as I say, for a 17-year-old to to, to be involved in, in that quality of uh, tournament, and. Uh, yeah, loser's medal in the in the final. Well, by then, of course, in the seasons that followed, you'd established yourself as a first-team player. However, just to mention the 1977-78 season, West Ham got relegated. Bonds with the throw. And just at the moment, West Ham just cannot get going. And in fact, most of the afternoon, they haven't really been able to put a convincing bit of uh, style onto their play. But now, maybe Curvishly can. That's a lovely ball played for Holland. Played inside again, cross, turning and failing to get it properly. But that's the best West Ham, uh, certainly the most incisive West Ham move we've had. The ball played through there delightfully for Pat Holland. He hit it in low and cross didn't quite get hold of it. And there goes the final whistle that could signal the end of a first division life for the time being at any rate for West Ham United. A defeat on a day they badly needed a victory. And now they can only wait to see what results of other teams in relegation trouble around them. Was that a big blow for, well it must have been at the time for yeah. the club? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, things were changing at the, at the football club and things were changing in football at the time as well. And uh, I wasn't getting as much football as I thought I should be getting. You know, I was young and 18, 19, and uh, as I said, I was seeing the Ray Wilkins and the Brian Robsons and the Glenn O'Rolls all playing for their side, and, you know, I wasn't I wasn't in the side at the time. And, and freedom of contract came in, and that was a, a, a real revolution at the time, and uh, which meant if your contract had run out, you could go, you could be transferred, and, and, and the fee would be set by a tribunal. I think back, and I've spoke to a couple of players, Alan Devonshire and, and, and Alvin Martin, one or two others, Paul Brush, at the time. And I was a bit headstrong, and, you know, I took the opportunity to leave. And I wished I hadn't have. 
Although I went to Birmingham and Aston Villa and I played my best football at Birmingham, I think if I'd have just stuck it out, John, I think I'd have been able to say well, I could have done 10 years at West Ham, yeah. like a lot of the other players, but I was a bit headstrong. And at the time with John, John Lyle, and I realised this when I went into management, if John said to me two and two was four, I'd have said it was five at the time. Really? If he said that was black, I'd have said it was white. You know, it was th- that sort of relationship. And then six months after I left, I went to Birmingham. And six months after I left, I bumped into John. And uh, we had we were talking and, and had a chat. You know, I'd settled down and I was playing regular. Um, and when I went into management, I always remembered that. And I had a couple of instances myself w- with young players uh, where if I said to them two and two was, was four, they'd have said five. And I was trying to explain, look, I've been there. You know, I've, do- I've done that. I've been a rebel. <laughs> I've done that. And, uh, you know, just calm down and let, it, let things take their take their time but that's what happened to me at West Ham and I was a bit headstrong and you know although as I said earlier I played my best football at Birmingham and and Villa uh, perhaps I should just give it a little bit more time Under Jim Smith at Birmingham Under Jim Smith and what happened Jim Smith sold Trevor Francis to to Nottingham Forest for £999,999 and uh, he revamped the side and he bought Archie Gemmell Colin Todd Frank Worthington Willie Johnston I mean, the faces that were coming in and, and, and I went there as a, as a 20-year-old and it was fantastic. And uh, we had a really good side and I really enjoyed the couple where well, I was there for three, nearly four years. Well, in your first season, you played in every league game and, and Birmingham got promoted back to Division One. Yeah, and, uh, and once we got back into the top flight, we established ourselves. It was a decent side, as I said, and uh, we could hold our own. And, and then things changed at the club and was having a bit of a bad time and it wasn't that bad you know we weren't struggling but a manager called Ron Saunders became available at Aston Villa and it was a big thing you know living in Birmingham you had to be there to, to appreciate what had happened and uh, Ron Saunders had just won the League Cup just won the League and uh, they were in the European Cup and he walked out and was available and Birmingham went and took, took Ron and, and sacked Jimmy and it was a bit harsh and uh, Jimmy went to Oxford and, and done ever so well and resurrected yeah. his career. And Ron came to Birmingham. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Alan Kirbishley. It's not going to be long, is it, before you come to Charlton Athletic when you talk to Alan Kirbishley. And you stayed at Aston Villa until December 1984. Uh, manager had changed again. And then you went to Charlton when they were in the old Division 2. Yeah, I mean, it was a big decision I had to make, John. The last game I played for Villa was against Liverpool. Uh, we drew 0-0, 40,000. And uh, Charlton came in for me and I just got married. And there was a big north-south north, divide in, in, in everything, especially house prices. And I'd moved up to Birmingham, Lock, Stock and Barrel, and quickly realised that if I didn't get back to London... I may never have got back to London because the house prices, the difference was incredible at the time. And, you know, early 80s. And I made the decision, and it was a financial decision more than anything else. But I left the, I left the top flight team, if you like, left the Premier League to join a championship side that was in the bottom three. And it was a big gamble. And, and in my mind, I was thinking that perhaps I'd go to Charlton, do well, and then I'd get another move. And I went to Charlton, we stayed up, the game before the end of the season and then Lenny Lawrence invested quite heavily in the side and um, you know brought five or six players in and, and then we went and won promotion you did under Lenny Lawrence but but I want to ask you something that happened in the meantime because only a year after you joined Charlton 
they moved out of the valley and went to Selhurst Park. Now, a lot of people listening to this won't remember why that was. Perhaps you could clarify it somewhat. Yeah, well, the people, the people that owned the club at the time, I think it was the Glickstein. The Glickstein brothers. Yeah, well, owned the ground. The John Fry and, and John Sunley bought the club and they didn't own the club. You know, obviously didn't own the valley. And they were trying to buy it. They, they wouldn't sell it. And, you know, they got fed up with doing the repairs, etc. So they said, look, we're going to move. We're going to move to Crystal Palace and try to call their bluff. And it didn't work because they didn't sell the club to them, uh, the, the freehold. And, and we moved to Crystal Palace, which was, when you think about it, quite incredible. It, you know, it's a big rival. It wasn't as if it was around the corner. And... We suddenly went to Crystal Palace. The players just got on with it, but we were playing in front of 3,000 people, 4,000 people at Palace. But it happened, and we just had to get on with it, John. And incredibly, incredibly, we was in the top flight in the Premier League, if you like, and, and we stayed there. Yes, I was going to say you won promotion, as, as we said. Now, for the time being, you're going to leave Charlton for this conversation, because in August 1987, you joined Brighton. Well, what happened was that um, my first major injury was the knee which we spoke about when I was at Burma. And then when I was at Charlton, uh, I injured me Achilles. And um, you know, it kept me out for four or five months. And then he went and bought Colin Walsh in and Steve McKenzie and a couple of, you know, strengthened the squad. He couldn't wait for me. I was going to be out for two or three months. And when I came back, I couldn't get back inside. And I'm suddenly sitting there thinking, I've just left Aston Villa. I've helped the team stay up. I've helped the team get promotion. And now I can't get back in the side. And I needed to play. And uh, I was desperate to go and play and get out on loan somewhere. But then when Brighton came in, I decided to move there and uh, to play play for Brighton. I'd done three years at Brighton and, and Lenny Lawrence, who sold me, then brought me back as player coach uh, for the reserves. And then Lenny fell out with Mike Flanagan after a couple of matches. And suddenly I got promoted from the reserve team coach to first team coach. And that's how my Charlton managerial career started. In 1991, Lenny Lawrence left Charlton to become Middlesbrough manager and you and Steve Grit took over, first of all, as joint managers. Funny enough, I think there was a, there was a joint manager at Spurs at the time. I think it was Ray Clements and... Um, Doug Livermore? Doug Livermore, I think, yeah. It was some, something that perhaps had been fought up. And, and um, Lenny was actually negotiating a transfer of a Middlesbrough player at the time. And um, as he was doing a transfer, trying uh, Alan Kernigan it was... As he was doing a transfer and we were all on holiday, they offered him the job to be Middlesbrough manager. So he, he decided to go to Middlesbrough and, um, you know, and <laughs> said, said to me and Stevie, uh, you know, it's not for you, you know, to come with, come with me. I've recommended that one of you two or both of you take over. And the club was in financial trouble and we had no ground. We were supposed to have been going to Upton Park uh, for, uh, for six or seven games and, and then we was going to get back to the valley and uh, and whatever and it was a real mess but the club decided to give me and Stevie the job we was both contracted as players I was first team coach and, and Stevie was reserve team coach but they gave us the job and when I look back John at um, everything that's happened to Charlton I think that the job me and Steve done actually saved the club because we went to Upton Park people thought that perhaps we was going to foul and we kept the thing going. We actually finished seventh that year, just outside the playoffs. In the second season, we was, in, we was second in the league when we sold Robert Lee to Newcastle, who were top, Kevin Keegan, and we sold a young boy called Anthony Barnes to Chelsea. And that, with, the, with the, the owners at the time, 
all the money that was collected got us back to the valley. And I think if we hadn't have been successful in that 18 months, me and Steve, uh, and the club would have perhaps struggled, then we wouldn't have got the investment that took us back to the valley. In the summer of 1995, the Charlton chairman then, Richard Murray, made you the sole manager. Yeah, and uh, I mean, can you imagine it? It was a really difficult situation because Steve had been a Charlton boy throughout and um, a fan's favourite. And, uh, you know, I was the outsider, if you like. And uh, but, but Richard Murray, whenever he wanted to talk, this is quite interesting, John, whenever he wanted to talk to us about anything, you know, perspective signings or the team or whatever, firstly, me and Steve had to make sure we got our stories right before we spoke to him because he may have got Steve or he may have got me and we didn't want to contradict ourselves so in the morning we sit there and go well well, this is the side for the Saturday so if the chairman phones we knew what you know we didn't want him to think well Curbs is picking one team and Stevie Grit's picking yeah. the other and we was called Tweedledee and Tweedledum in, you know, by the press and we decided that I would do two press conferences and then Steve would do two and then I would do two so we'd done home and away home and away so we didn't uh, do all the home games where you get more results and you know we fought really long and hard about it but but Richard Murray decided that he'd had enough of that and he he offered me the job and he said to me if you don't take it um, if you decide you don't want it I'm moving elsewhere Jimmy Smith at the time was the chairman of the league managers obviously my old manager so I phoned Jimmy up and I said look I've got a bit of a quandary here I've got a bit of a problem this is what's going on and Jimmy's advice was, look, if the, if the chairman wants you to be the manager, you've got to take it. Um, is he going to look after Steve in terms of contracts and whatever? I said, yeah, they're going to, they're going to. he said, well, that's, that's as much as you can do. And you'll just have to take the flack if it comes along, you know, whatever. And obviously it was a big chance for me. Um, so the first thing I did when I agreed was to phone Steve and meet him at the valley and explain it. And, and go through it with him uh, obviously he was massively disappointed and he took it took it very well but it wasn't as if there was a massive falling out and backstabbing or anything else like that I think uh, it was what happened and he knew Steve that I couldn't turn it down and I knew if it was going the other way he wouldn't be able to turn it down no absolutely the following season your first in fact Charlton finished sixth reached the playoffs and lost to Crystal Palace in the semi-finals but two seasons later, not only did you get there, you won promotion to the Premier League. And this brings us probably to one of the most memorable games in your career that you would have been involved with. Um, you, you'd beaten uh, Ipswich, I think it was, in the semi-finals. And that took you to Wembley to play Sunderland. And this will always be remembered, Alan, for those listeners who aren't Charlton fans or who don't remember <laughs> this. It was one of the most exciting playoff finals ever, yeah. if not the most. I don't think it's ever going to be matched, John. No, no. Well, you tell the story story from where you were as manager of Charlton when we got to Wembley I was just staggered by the noise and the fact that 80,000 people was in red and white because Sunderland were red and white we were red and white and when you actually walked out in the stadium and, and saw it and the noise it was it was an incredible situation but we've gone out there and whenever you see a picture I saw it I went to Charlton versus Sunderland this weekend and they had a picture in the boardroom of the two teams walking out and Peter Reid's walking out, and uh, and I knew Peter from the under-21s. We'd known each other forever, same age, etc. He's walking out, and I'm looking as miserable as sin, and so is the team. And the reason by that is because I said to the players, listen, I've seen loads of teams walk out at Wembley, 
and all concerned about where their family is sitting and this and that and they're soaking up the atmosphere and they're waving to people I want none of that I want you all to be focused and make sure you're ready for the start forget what's going on and when you see that picture there's about there's about 12 the miserablest people in the world walking on the pitch at Wembley and funny enough there is a couple when you see the video there's a couple of Sunderland players, players waving yeah. to, to whatever but I just thought that that game going into it I think both us and Sunderland 16 out of the previous 17 seasons would have gone straight up with a points total we had I see yeah uh, but as you know Forrest went up I can't remember Middlesbrough I think you were fourth weren't you we were fourth Sunderland yeah. were third and um, but I just felt that we had to win that final I thought Sunderland could afford to lose it I couldn't afford to lose it the club couldn't afford to lose it because I knew if we lost I'd lose four or five players I knew that straight away and, and, and the chairman did uh, so it was a must win for us that game well before we get as far as the penalties which was the biggest drama the game ended 4-4 well, the great thing was was the two benches because, as I say, Reedy was on the other side and Brian Pop Robson was in his partner Sunderland uh, coaching staff and, you know, was looking over at each other as if to say, like, what on earth's going on here? But Clive got his hat-trick, which is probably the best hat-trick you're ever going to see. It's Clive Mendonca. Clive Mendonca. Right. The hat-trick, which is fantastic. You know, for anyone out there who's not seen it, the way he takes all the goals, he's a brilliant finisher. Steve... Jones inside the penalty area. Good cross. Mendonca! It's extraordinary! Absolutely extraordinary! A hat-trick for Clive Mendonca! Jones got to the byline. Mendonca needed two telling touches. And the game's ended 4-4. And the penalties... We'd been practising like everyone has, you know, and we took it serious, practice, you know, made them walk up to, to the penalty spot and etc. But you, when, when you, as the manager, you have to go to the referee and you have to give the ref the five names. And Eddie Wollstone was the ref, so I gave him my five and Reedy's gave me his five. And then we're not allowed no. to stand in there. We had to, to move, move out and go to the bench. Well, when it got to five all... I didn't have a clue who else was going to take our penalties. And uh, when it got, to, I think it got to six or I'm thinking, oh, who's the next one? Who's going to take it? So could you communicate from where no. you were? I mean, they were having to make their own decisions yeah. then and, on the and pitch. I, and when it got to, to six or I think Eddie Walsenholm shouted out to, to my boys, come on, who's taking the next one? And I think it was Richard Rufus, Eddie Yowds, Sean Newton and Stevie Jones. And they was all looking the other way. Not right. This is what I've been told uh, later. And then suddenly Richard Rufus pushed Sean Newton out the centre circle. And when you see it again, Sean Newton jogs all the way to the penalty spot because I think he's absolutely shaking. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never seen Sean take a penalty before, ever. Anyway, he takes his penalty and he scores. Robinson for Charlton. 6-5. And still no mistake. Brilliant goal in the playoff semi-final against Ipswich. Very, very cool. Well, I, I, actually, I think I'm right in saying that the Sunderland missed penalty. It was Michael Gray. What happened, as Michael Gray's going up to take the penalty, I said to Keith Peacock next to me, I said, Keith, blimey, what's going on? He said, don't watch this one, because he's a lefty. And I went, oh, right. He said, go on, don't watch it. And the cameras actually got me with Matt 
you know, my, my hands over my head, over my face, and I didn't watch it. Michael Gray, born in Sunderland. Elliott has saved it! And Charlton are promoted! And Sasa Illich, as he has been for three months, is the hero. Whoever would have thought it. And when I didn't hear the roar, because we was, kick, we was taking the penalties at the Sunderland end, I knew it had been saved. And people asked me why I'd done it, and it's because Keith said he's a lefty, and he was the only yeah. lefty. And, and the thing about it, once we won it, and everyone's celebrating, Reedy was unbelievable. He came in the dressing room, praised all the players, went round. It must have been devastating. And obviously, the next season, they came, they came up, which I, I knew they were strong enough to do that. Uh, and as I'm going back to what I was saying, I don't think we would have, because I had four or five players that I knew Premier League sides would come and take. But the following season, you were relegated back. We got relegated last game of the season. We was at home to Sheffield Wednesday, I think it was. You weren't away long, were you? Because in, in the 1999-2000 season, you won promotion again. At this time, you won the Division One title. Yeah, well, what happened was, when we first went up, John, we made a strategic decision that a third of the money... The Premier League money, once we beat Sunderland, a third of the Premier League money would go into the stadium to try and improve it. A third of the money will go on the team and a third of the money will stay in the club for, for a rainy day. And obviously we went, we went back down last game of the season. But in that summer, it gave me the opportunity to, to strengthen. We sold Danny Mills to, to Leeds for £4 million. But it gave me the opportunity that I didn't, once again, lose my better players, Mark Kinsella and one or two others. And I managed to keep the squad together and bring some other players in. And he gave us the opportunity to bounce straight back, which is what we did. And, you know, it made us that much stronger because of it. And uh, the second season back in the Premier League, I wasn't so loyal to the group that got me there. Sometimes you can, as a newly promoted side, but as a manager, be a bit too loyal. And I decided that I was going to perhaps uh, make a few changes which is what we did Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless how to get 30 30 to get 30 to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Alan Kirbisley. Now, you went on then and had several successful seasons uh, in the Premier League. Let's be honest. I mean, I've got the league positions here. I mean, 12th, 7th, 11th and 13th. Mm. Now, I want to ask you something about the, se- the season you finished 7th, which was 2003-04, because your assistant was Mervyn Day. Yeah. And I knew Mervyn quite well, and I used to come down and see the two of you, didn't I, in the yeah. office. And, and I always remember on the last day of that season, when the league positions were put up you know, in, after the game, you'd finish 7th. And I said, Mervyn, this is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, what an achievement for you and Alan. And do you know what he said to me? He said, our next problem, John, is expectation. Yeah. Do you yeah. understand that? Absolutely, <laughs> because that season was the strongest side probably I had. We beat Chelsea Boxing Day 4-2 at the Valley and we were fourth. And Ranieri was the manager at Chelsea. And the next day he made a bid for Scott Parker. But they made a derisory offer, Chelsea, and it was wrong. We, it wasn't the question that we was going to keep hold of him. We just felt it was right that we got the right fee. And it dragged on for, for two weeks. I remember... Paolo Di Canio was at the t- in the team at the time and he came to see me, Matt Holland, who was the captain, come and see me and said, look, you've got, you've got to let Scott go. I said, I know I've got to let Scott go, but I've got to get the right money. And what happened was it went on for two or three weeks and relationships soured with, with Scott and whatever. But we got our fee, which was 12 million. Uh, and we got Carlton Cole on loan, which was a bonus for us. And Scott went, Scott went to Chelsea. But I firmly believe... If we'd have kept that squad together, if we'd have kept him, we'd have finished in the top four or five. I really felt that we were strong enough. I had top players, Di Canio, Klaus Jensen, and we was a really good side. And, and, and it derailed us a little bit, but we finished seventh, which was the highest yeah. we've ever finished. But my problem was I couldn't spend any of the money. Everybody else knew I had 12 million to spend. And, and, I, just, you know, and I got held to ransom, so I couldn't spend any of it. So we, you know, we kept that money, finished seventh, and... Yeah, you're right. That's when the expectation level changed at the club. And, and we, we brought in Danny Murphy after that and, and one or two others where we was trying to upgrade and, you know, attracting someone like Danny Murphy from Liverpool to come to Charlton, you know, and we had Di Canio the year before. Uh, you know, we was changing. You know, that's what people wanted. And, uh, yeah, we was having to deal with the expectation level. Well, I suppose what you're saying is you were one player away Maybe it would have been Scott Parker if he'd stayed from getting a Champions League place, yeah, which I in Charlton's it. terms would have been unbelievable. Well, at the time, John, we was regularly beating the top four. You know, we was, we was beating Liverpool at Anfield. We, we were beating Chelsea, done a double over Chelsea. The only team we couldn't get the better of was Man U. We beat Arsenal 4-2 at Ivory, beating 1-0 at the Valley. You know, we was regularly beating the top sides and no one had it easy against us. But that side possibly was the strongest that Charlton have had. And, uh, you know, the regular Charlton fans will probably agree that that, that team that finished seventh I was the strongest. I would agree because yeah. I know one or two Charlton fans and they yeah. always talk very fondly of that season. Yeah. Now, just a word or two about your longevity here as a Charlton manager. You celebrated your 600th game in charge, uh, actually, against one of your old clubs, Birmingham City, in September 2005. And actually, before you left, you were only one short of the club record held by the great Jimmy Seed. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I mean, you were a Charlton legend. I mean, what was it like being manager of a club for such a long time? Well, Richard Bevan informed me, he was head of uh, chief executive for the league managers, informed me recently that I am the longest serving ever first time manager. Really? The longest first time first time manager, if you know what I mean. You know, because yeah, I know now, what you mean, the, the first job, main first job. First job, yeah. Staying there for 16 years. 
Yeah. Because, uh, you know, managers now we might get 16 days or 16 <laughs> weeks. Um, yeah. But because of the longevity, no one else has managed to get anywhere near it. I think Paul Tisdale was on his way at Exeter. Yes. He yes. got in the double N- figures. MK Dons, yeah. Yeah, he got yeah. in the double figures. And obviously, Fergie, 20-odd years, yeah. and, and Wenger. But that, that was their third or fourth club. Longest serving first-time manager. That's fantastic. And, of course, um, just to tell people again who won't remember, Jimmy Seed was the uh, legendary Charlton manager who'd taken them to great heights in the yeah. 1930s and, and was still manager after the war. So, so you'd, you'd established yourself in history there. And I just want to ask you about your reasons for leaving. Was it a big wrench when the time came when you left Charlton? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened, John. Before the end of that season, the England job was up. Sven had left and I was one of the people who got interviewed. I think it was me, Steve McLaren, Sam, Scolari, one or two others. But I was inv- I got involved in that and um, had a meeting with the FA. And in the end, they gave the job to Steve McLaren. But I had one year left on my contract. And Richard May was the chairman. And he sat me down and said, look, I want you to sign a new three-year contract. And I could have quite easily signed it. I was I was running the club, lock, stock and barrel. Not what, not what the managers have got now. No, no. I was, I was, All decisions. Yeah, main, main, mainly especially the, the football side. But I just felt I'd been there so long. If I'd have signed a new contract, it'd have been for the wrong reasons. I could have took the money and signed it. And as I say, if I'd have had a bad time, I knew I would, wouldn't have come under pressure because of how long I've been there and what we've done. But I said to him, look, I've done, done long enough. I'll do the other year. And then he said, well, that's a problem. He said, because if we're going to try and sign players in the summer, we want them to sign three or four year deals. They're going to ask about you. You've only got one year left. I said, well, I don't think that counts. You know, don't think that counts really for the player. He said, well, we, you know, it does. And he probably was right. He said, I don't think it's right. You know, that, that you're not going to be here for three or four years when we're trying to sign players and spending lots of money on them. And as we was having the conversations, because of the England thing, I was having the conversations, it, it, it just materialised over, over a week or so that perhaps it was best that I left. And the more I think about it, it was probably the right decision for, for all sorts of reasons. And it culminated on the Friday before we was playing Blackburn at home. And it was done. You know, I was gonna, you know we agreed that I was going to leave. Richard wanted to, to announce it the next day against Blackburn. I hadn't even told my staff what was going on. Got into the Blackburn game. I told the staff, told the players... Um, you know, I was leaving at the end of the season. And the one reason, apart from anything else, was to give the new manager the opportunity to come in and get and get his feet under the table and have all that summer and pre-season to work with the players and, 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 and have a bit of a, a, better, a better chance of it. We then went to Old Trafford my last game of the season, and uh, you know, last game, and uh, that was it. You know, I left. And, you know, suddenly... <laughs> When when a new season came around, I wasn't doing anything. Charlton first game was away at West Ham, which was quite ironic. Um, but suddenly, I, I wasn't working, and you know, the start of the season was was a bit bit strange for me. But you know, I'd left, and now it was up to someone else to take over. Uh, and uh, Ian Dowie went in there, and it's quite interesting. I just said to, to said to you that you know I'd been at Charlton for sixteen years. I think they gave Ian sixteen games. Just want to go back for a minute, Alan, to the England interview. Full marks for getting it on the shortlist, if you see what I mean. But did you go into that interview thinking, yeah, I've got a, I've got a fighting chance of being the England boss here? Well, yeah, I mean, 
what it was, I, I met Brian Barwick, and it was just like a, a coffee and biscuits just to have a chat. Um, but it got leaked, and it was suddenly in the Sunday papers. And uh, we were playing that, that afternoon, a live game for Sky. It got leaked Sunday morning that we, we had the meeting. But the chairman knew about it. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, they asked permission. But when they had the round of first interviews, uh, I couldn't go. We had a game. We had an FA Cup replay. I couldn't go to it. Sam went to it, and I think Steve and, and whatever. So really, my my interview was at the FA. And um, I just got the feeling when I got in there, they'd already made their mind up. You know, and, and it was more of a courtesy thing that I was on the short list. And because I missed the first interview, perhaps it went against me. But yeah, I thought that, you know, hold on, I could, if this works out... I could uh, I could be the England manager. I'm not too sure if, if 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 I was ready for it. So I had my interview. Uh, they decided to give it to Steve because Steve had been working with Sven, and they want I think they wanted that continuity, and that, and that was it. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Alan Kirbysley. So when you left Charlton, you had that period, as you said, out of work or not not doing anything, and then in December 2006. And this must have been a club, even after what had you done at Charlton, this was still a club, another club close to your heart. You were appointed manager of West Ham. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was my dream. And, and in, in all fairness, John and honesty, they came after me before that, when, uh, when Harry left. And uh, I didn't think I was ready, funny enough. This was three or four years before. Um, I think they gave the job to Glen Rodo in the end, I think. Um, but they came after me then. But I decided to stay at the stay at Charlton, and, and the main reason was I didn't think I was ready to take on what it meant taking on a, a club. Uh, no disrespect, but a, the club the size of West Ham, and, and you know West Ham is one of the top twenty clubs in the world in terms of uh, gate and uh, prestige, and and also the expectation level and everything else that goes with it. So I didn't think I was ready when they first came after me, but I did think I was ready this time. Sacked Alan Pardew after getting beat 4-0, I think, at uh, Bolton, I think it was. And they came after me, and, and uh, yeah, I agreed to go. And I uh, went in in December. I think we had 14 points from 17 games. It was in the bottom three. You looked certainties to go down. Well, I looked at the squad. <laughs> no, I must admit, I looked at yeah. the squad, and I thought, you know, obviously, season before that, you know, they'd come up. Pardew had done a great job. They'd come up, finished ninth. Got to the cup final against against um, Liverpool, the great yeah. final with Steven Gerrard. Steven Gerrard yeah. But then it went wrong the next season, which often does yeah. in that second season. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at it and I was fully confident that, you know, I could uh, turn it around. And I didn't know the owners, the Icelandic owners. Uh, obviously never met them before, but that was full of enthusiasm. And I thought, right, great. And uh, I said earlier that uh, I'd never beaten Man United. But my first game for West Ham manager was at home to Man United at Upton Park and we won 1-0 and then we went and drew at Fulham and I looked around at the squad and everything else and I thought well what's the matter what, what's wrong here you know we're just they've just put two performances in and uh, why are they in the bottom three and then after that we couldn't win a game for 10 games John we didn't lose them all but we just couldn't we should have won a couple but the results were going against me going against us and for whatever reason and I just could not find the right team I signed a few players. Matty Upson came in, got injured in the first game. And this one, I signed Louis Spurmorty from Fulham. And he didn't quite work out to start with. And all the people I'd brought in never really settled. And the atmosphere was changing and the crowd. And, and you know, 
I remember getting beat at home by we got beat at home by Spurs four three. Amazing game. We should have won it. There. I remember Lost four three. Winning three two with five minutes to go. Yeah. I come out of the ground thinking, well, we were ten points behind the fourth spot, and I'm thinking, well, we're in a bit of trouble here. Uh, and then it changed. Seven wins out your last nine. Well, it changed, and and the way it changed, and you often hear about luck, and you often hear about confidence, and that's exactly what happened, John. It was incredible. We played Blackburn after that Tottenham game. We scored a goal that didn't go over the line, or was dubious, and we got an iffy penalty, and we won 2-1. Right? But we played well against Spurs the previous week, and I kept roughly the same side at Blackburn, but that gave me the confidence for that next week that I wasn't going to make any changes. I was going to keep the same side because they'd won. Whereas previously, I was chopping and changing, trying to find the right formula. Kept the same team. They performed okay in the next game. So roughly, it was the same players that went on that run. I used 13 players, I think, in, in the last nine games. We won seven out of nine. We kept five clean sheets. And we had a couple of 1-0 wins in there. Big 1-0 wins. But the team that finished the season at Man United, nine of them was already there before I got there. So it was just a thing about confidence. And that came back with a couple of results. And the confidence that came back into them players was quite incredible. And as I say, that, that run of seven games, I know it's been equaled with Leicester a couple of years ago, and I think Wigan done it. But the teams we beat, the Man United, the Arsenal, we won at the Emirates, I think, first team to win there. You know, it's some incredible results we got. We beat Bolton, who was in the top five. Uh, but as I say, to win seven out of your last nine was quite incredible. Well, and, and the following season, you finished in the top half of the table. So yeah. clearly you, you were making progress. But I want to move on to the start of the 2008-9 season. You uh, started quite well again. But there was some speculation around about your position as manager. Mm -hmm. I know you're going to tell me later that it was, it was uh, intensified by um, the fact that you were unhappy that mm -hmm. a couple of players were sold. Could, could you just sort of clarify what went on there? Well, yeah, I, you know, the second season we finished, we finished tenth. Um, we had a lot of injuries that season, and and but the Icelandic owners, uh, Egert Magnusson was the chairman. We decided to invest in players that had European experience, were young enough to be at the club for for three or four years, and perhaps would get a bit of return if we if we sold them, and they would attract other players. So I signed Scotty Parker from Newcastle. I signed Craig Bellamy from Liverpool, uh, Kieran Dyer from Newcastle, and a couple of other players that we thought would be 22, 23. They'd be around for some time. And if we'd done well, they'd attract other players to come to the football club. And, and the Iceland owners felt that we should be a top six club with the crowds and, and everything else. And we finished 10th. And we started the next season. I know we only played three or four games, but we were fifth in the league. And the club... Uh, we had the financial crisis in 2008 and the Icelandic banks uh, took, you know, took a big hit and they lost control of the club. The creditors wanted their money, etc. Well, I didn't know at the time when I signed for the club that they lent a lot of money to buy it. It wasn't, you know, cash or whatever and, uh, you know, the creditors wanted their money. So, so they asked me to sell players. They wanted to, they wanted to get a certain amount of money and I was happy to sell players. Um, we had a big squad because so I brought players in. But the season has started. They wanted me to get to X amount. I got nearly there. 
And we played Blackburn at home. I think we beat them 4-1, I think. And the international break was coming up. And they was trying to sell a player. And I asked them not to because I had lots of injuries. I said, if you, I said, don't sell anymore. We're fifth in the league. We've got a really good next couple of fixtures coming up. Leave it to the to January transfer window and I will get your money and I'll get you a bit more. But they wanted to sell sell the player. And I, and I said to them, you better have a look at my contract. Because it basically said I had final say. And what was happening, because I was trying to sell players, agents were getting involved and the agents knew that Perhaps I was trying to sell. Players were coming to see me. West Ham players were coming to see me saying that you're trying to sell me. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. You are. Because my agent knows that you've been talking to other clubs about, you know, it, it, you know what the football's like, John. So every day I was having a, a battle with, with, with my players, firstly, who thinking I'm trying to sell them. And then with the people in charge trying to stop them trying to sell them. And in the end, it became untenable that I wasn't, running the football club I wasn't running my side of it and I had to make a big decision and obviously being a West Ham boy Canning Town boy played for West Ham waited for this job it was the job I wanted and suddenly I had to make a really big decision and some would say I made the wrong one I should have just stuck it out and got on with it but I made the decision and uh, decided that you know they, they made my uh, position untenable and I left the football club and you know, ironically, I think uh, Gianfranco Zola came in. They made a couple of signings. They sold George McCartney to Sunderland, and with that money, made a couple of signings. So, you know, they were desperate for money, but they they spent quite a bit of it. And in that January transfer window, they sold Craig Bellamy at Man City. They sold Matty Everton to to Stoke, and they sold uh, another player. It took in about twenty million in that January transfer window, which could have been done if I still would have been there. I perhaps wouldn't have sold that amount, but, you know, they'd have got their money what they needed. And, you know, at, at the end of it, I've come out of there thinking, you know what, I had a really good side, but I just felt that I wasn't in charge anymore. And the players knew that, and it, it just didn't have the right mix and the right atmosphere at the club. You actually won a case for constructive dismissal, didn't you? Yeah, I, I won the case, but what happened, it took a year. The Premier League, funny enough, had the process in place for a manager that got sacked, but he didn't actually actually have the process in place for a manager that resigned, right? And and Richard Scudamore, it took a bit of time to try and organise. And funny enough, there was a spate of managers resigning because soon after I resigned, Kevin Keegan resigned at Newcastle, and I think Martin O'Neill resigned at Villa. So suddenly there was three managers that had not been sacked, which was quite straightforward. They'd resigned. And the process and the way that it was going to be sorted out and the industrial tribunal or whatever, it wasn't really in place. And it took me a year to get it sorted out. And, and I think in that year, perhaps a bit of damage had been done. Uh, I wasn't around and, 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 you know, why did he leave? Oh, he wouldn't sell a player and all that sort of thing. So, you know, after he got sorted, it was something like 14 months, which would never be the case now. No, no. And I think they'd done a lot of damage. Well, uh, funnily enough, that brings me on to the big question at the uh, towards the end of this. It's 10 years, Alan, since you left West Ham. All right, say nine years since the case was settled. And you've never gone back in. Well, that's down to me, John. Well, you tell me about it. Yeah, that's down to me because uh, I was made offers. What happened, it took the 14 months. uh, And then once it was sorted out, I was free to to perhaps... uh, And I thought with my record, uh, 10 years in the Premier League, that perhaps a Premier League club would be the next job I would get. 
I was getting offered clubs that was in danger of going down with, with 10 or 12 games left. Uh, you know, and I, and I thought, well, you know, if I go then it don't work. But I remember Alex, Alex Ferguson saying to me, look, you've been out too long, you've got to get back in because things change, you've got to get back in. And the clubs I was getting offered after that were perhaps championship clubs. And I'm thinking, well, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I'm a bit better than that, you know, uh, with my Premier League experience. And then I thought I did have a job. I won't tell you it was, but I thought I had it, a Premier League club, uh, only for it to be took away after three meetings. They gave it to someone else. And then suddenly you're out for three or four years. Suddenly new owners, agents, different people involved at football club, and then suddenly you're, you're, you're out of the picture. And then I started doing uh, the media stuff, the TV and etc. And then suddenly I'm in a different, different lifestyle. I did go back to Fulham. Two stints there, didn't yeah. you, as an advisor? Yeah, which I think was a really good role for an experienced manager to perhaps go in and help an inexperienced manager if they don't think it's a threat, but can offer a bit of advice, especially how to deal with the board, how to deal with this thing or, or this disciplinary thing or, or whatever. And, and I thought that was a really good role uh, for me, uh, but it didn't, didn't quite work out. And, uh, you know, now, as you say, you're out so long now, you're out. You know, but mainly, or mostly, that's down to me. Do you still hanker for the involvement? Do you miss the I buzz? Do. I do. When I go to a game like I did on Saturday, uh, when I watch Charlton play uh, Sunderland, yeah, I do. But I look at what what is going on now in football and the pathway of of getting perhaps into the Premier League. For the for the British manager, you've got to win promotion. You're not going to get elevated like perhaps the guy at Everton Silver. You're not going to suddenly be put into a big club like that. You got Sean Dyche one promotion. You know, you've got Eddie Howe, one promotion, and Chris and having to stay there. Oh, OK, Roy, Roy Hodgson's gone to, to Palace, but vastly experienced manager, he got elevated in. But all the other British managers now seem to have to win promotion from the Championship to get into that Premier League. And it's a lot more difficult uh, than perhaps it was. But yeah, if I look back, absolutely gutted what happened to me at West Ham um, and wished it hadn't have happened to me. But then perhaps I should have, took a different route you know jumped back in and got back in got back on the merry-go-round if you like and and perhaps I'll still be managing now but my life has changed and I see a lot more of my family than I ever did so it's a little bit different for me now you're 61 now Alan I still think you've got a lot of time <laughs> you've got a wealth of experience haven't well, you we've just been through all those years of football management I mean I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who could make very good use of your yeah. experience and, 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 and well you know what the interesting thing is I said to you before I think I'm still in the top 10 of uh, Premier League managers in appearances because they don't the managers don't get 10 years anymore in the Premier League you know they're in and if they're not successful they're out and that's the, that's the nature of the game at the moment and I can't remember it was recently Pochettino got into the 100 club because he'd won 100 games in the Premier League. Well, I'm in that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you've done more than that. Alan, I hope you do get back in some capacity. It's we'll been see. great talking to you. Thank you very much. OK. The undisputed world heavyweight champion of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. This has been Monty Meats. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode and I'll see you next time.
Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. At TalkSport, we absolutely love it when our fans get stuck in. That's why we want you to join us in The Dugout, a brilliant new TalkSport listener community. It's a place where you can tell us what sports you're into and who your favourite teams are. And tell us what you think we could do better, like big guests and new sports and that. You could win an Amazon voucher for taking part. What are you waiting for? Visit TalkSport.com dugout and get stuck in. 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. 